Welcome to Behind the White Coat Podcast. I am your host, Eric Malara, a first-year medical student. In this podcast, we listen to the stories of those underrepresented in medicine. Today's guest is Dr. Glenn Wacom, a fifth-year general surgery resident at the University of Michigan. Prior to this, he attended Princeton University for his undergraduate degree, where he played football for the Tigers. He then attended the University of California, San Francisco for medical school. In this episode, we will be talking about Dr. Walcom's journey into medicine, why representation in medicine matters, and also about his experience of taking care of dying COVID patients at the beginning of the pandemic. Can we just start from kind of the beginning, like your journey into medicine? So I am um, from Southern California. I have uh, a brother and sister, and both my parents are from Cameroon and immigrated over. My mom is a family practice physician, and my dad runs his own um, business. And so, you know, I spent a lot of time with my mom when she was, she had me like at the beginning of her residency uh, in family medicine. So I spent a lot of my early years in the hospital and like sort of hanging around nurses, hanging around her. Long story short, my parents basically always in our household growing up, you always had to have a goal of what you wanted to be. Like, so they'd always be like, what do you want to do when you grow up? What do you want to do? And you always had, it could be anything. It could be, I want to, you know, bag groceries at the local grocery store, but you just always had to say something. And I remember just like always from a young age saying, I want to be a doctor, like even before knowing like what that kind of entailed. And that's just because of my mom and seeing her and how her much her patients loved her doing family practice. And so that sort of was like the beginning of my journey. I got to, I uh, went to Princeton for undergraduate and had to play football and football got me there. And so even when I was there though, I kept doing pre-med and I struggled. I struggled a ton. Mm -hmm. Like um, my first semester, I think uh, at midterms, I had a 1.8. But I, you know, and I went to the pre-med advising and they were like, oh, I think you should look into some other stuff. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But the thing was, is that like, because I kept had said my whole life I want to be a doctor and everyone who knew me was like, oh, Glenn's going to be the doctor. I felt like this pressure to kind of continue to do what I, what I want to do. And also, like, I had no other interest. I never really thought about other fields other than the things kids all, like, you know, be a pilot or something. But, you know, like, I never thought of anything seriously. So I just sort of that kind of motivated me and kept me going in the medical field and, like, you know, got better, got tutors, worked hard. And then, uh, yeah, I was fortunate enough to get into medical school. And like, I'm so happy because I, I can't imagine doing anything else. Like I, I truly love being a doctor and being a surgeon. So what was that change for you going from, you said like the 1.8, your first semester, like what switched it for you? College was nothing like my high school. Like my high school, I went to a good high school, but it was, school was fairly, had always been fairly easy for me my entire life. And, you know, I always felt pretty smart and then get to college, man. And like everyone was smart. And <laughs> And, they, and like, you know, and they all had, and it felt like they'd all done this before. They went to like these really, really wealthy prep schools and, you know, had all kinds of head start on me. And so it just was sort of like buckling down. And like I said, like and asking for help, like I got tutors, I went to like my classmates and I was just like, Hey, like, well, like, can I study with you guys? They, you know, they helped me with study guides. And it was just like, I think that was the biggest difference is it sort of like, I didn't really have too much pride to be like, oh, I'm going to figure this out on my own. Like I went and asked for help all the time. I went to like 
all the, I don't even remember what they're called, but like office hours of like the TAs. And so I just, I just gave it full on and I started to understand it because, you know, if you put enough time and energy into something, I think, you know, none of it is so complex that you can't figure it out. It's just a matter of when you hear about people dropping out pre-med one, I think there is differences in like the baseline of like, if your high school is not that great and you start taking these advanced classes, it's hard. So like some of that you can't make up, but two, it's just exhausting. It takes a lot of energy to like constantly be studying when people aren't, when your friends are hanging out and have fun. Like you sacrifice a lot to do it. And I think not many people want to do that. But, you know, I sort of like, I think coming to being an athlete honestly helped a lot because that mentality of just like never giving up and keep pushing through really helped me, you know, kind of keep with these classes. And so I ended up better on the other side and ended up graduating with honors. And so, you know, it was a big turnaround. I can only imagine that the, workload got even harder as each semester went on and also with football. So what was that like balancing football, pre-med and also your social life? Yeah. Um, in some ways it actually was really helpful because it focused me because I, I knew I had practice or like I knew I had workouts is that I had a limited amount of time to get my work done. You know, I had, and so it was nice because you know, I, I, I worked like when I, when I had classes finished, I was like, I got two hours before I got to go practice. And so, you know, I went and did my work. And then after practice, it was like, you know, it's six o'clock. I got to wake up at, for work at 5 a.m. So I got to do, I got to finish all the work I didn't do. I got to go to this like study session. And so it just sort of really, really focused me. And because uh, we were on a team, like I got like all the social aspects sort of at practice. And so I, it's not like I necessarily needed to be going out all the time to like hang out with people because I spent a lot of my day with my teammates. And so like they fulfilled my social interaction. And then the rest of the time, I just really, really worked. And then, um, you know, I had tons of fun too, like, you know, when it was time to have fun. But I think the not having a lot of time was so beneficial to me because it just forced it. Because I'm like sort of a procrastinator. And so, you know, I feel like if I had it all day, I would like take all day to do something. But if I got two hours, I'm going to take two hours. And, um, and so that was helpful. And that really is super helpful because it, when I went to medical school, it was like night and day. Cause I was like, there's so much time. I was like, oh, this is great. Like, I get anything done. And so like it, it's been super helpful and it's been even helpful in residency too of just sort of getting up and getting your day structured and going through it. Um, and so all that's been very beneficial. So you briefly talked about, you know, the going to medical school and having more time, but can you maybe expand more on that transition of going from, you know, your undergraduate and, and then going to med school? Is that like, yeah. So, so I feel like the transition, it, the hardest part of medical school is getting it eat like hands down. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure you're, you, I'd love to hear your thoughts and see if you agree. But I, once you're in there, you know, it's hard. Like we are, our dean said the first day, you have to try to fail out of medical school because the mentality switches from pre-med, like this, like sort of weeding out competition to medical school is like, you know, they just want you to be a, a good doctor. So they want you to learn the stuff. It's not like they're not trying to trick you on the exams. They're not trying to, it, it is like they're teaching you all the stuff you need to know. And, I would hope most people find it interesting. So studying was also easy because like I wanted to learn the stuff when 
that couldn't say the same thing for organic chemistry or anything like that. <laughs> and so, um, so the transition to me, I thought was great. And like, I truly love medical school. You know, I said all the time, it's like the most fun I never want to do again. Uh, <laughs> because it was learning about all things, how to take care of patients, how to save lives. And it, it was all focused in a condensed way where there's a lot of material, but the material is relatively simple. Like the, the, the concepts of it aren't difficult to grasp and wrap your head around. Uh, it's just a lot of it. And so you just have to spend the time kind of memorizing and, you know, organizing it in your head. But I, it, you know, I, I found the transition relatively, I don't want to say easy because I don't think anything's easy, but it was simple in the sense of, you know, they tell you exactly what you need to know and you have to learn it. And my med school was pass fail for the first two years. And so that took the, like the pressure off because, you know, all you had to do was pass. There wasn't a curve. There wasn't a grade. And so the transition was great. What was probably kind of like the hardest part about med school or something that took you by surprise? Oof. Honestly, sometimes uh, the applying what you're learning in the books to uh, like the patients you start seeing, I think is starts to become really hard. So I think on when they write a test question, you know, it's a 60 year old woman with diabetes who's got left chest pain that radiates down her arm. And you're like, Oh, that's a heart attack. And like that's like cleaner's day. And you kind of can figure that out. But like real patients that you meet don't come in like that. They don't say all the buzzwords that you learn. Right. And so it, it, to me, that was like so hard. Cause like I left like the early years of med school is like with all this knowledge. And then I got to start meeting and talking to the patients. And I'm like, man, like they're not presenting like they did in the books. Uh, and so it, it, it took a while to sort of cross that bridge. So that was hard Two, the, the other part about it is like sort of never really knowing where you belong, especially when you kind of get on the wards. You're sort of, you're not, I mean, I hate to really say it, but to be honest, you're a, most of the time a non-essential part of the medical team. Like if you don't show up, like everything still functions. <laughs> and so, uh, when you, you know, and, and that, that can be hard too. And if you're a medical student and you're trying to like show and like people, your knowledge base and you want to be a part of the team, you want to help out, you want to do well, get good evaluations, but sometimes it's just hard to know what your role is and it's to find value in what you're doing. Cause sometimes you feel like you're just like slowing things down, annoying people by asking them questions. And so I thought that part also, there were some challenges in that, but you know, you know, like that, I, the good definitely outweighed the bad for sure. Did you feel the same way starting medical school? Like you said, when you started at Princeton that you kind of felt like everyone else like knew what to do. Yeah, I think so. I think Princeton was different. I think like at college, I felt out of place for, you know, a lot of the reasons I felt like being a minority was one. I think the socioeconomic status, especially of a place like Princeton, it was like mm, the majority of people who go there are extremely wealthy. And like, I felt like they all, even if they didn't know each other already, they like were similar. Like they all vacationed in the same places. Like their parents sort of were all six degrees of separation because that's just how rich people are. Uh, and so I felt so out of place coming from, you know, like middle class Southern California. And so that aspect of just not even feeling like you belong because like you, you felt like an outsider of a club. 
med school to me was a little bit different because I think a lot of people, I mean, no one really, even if your parents, are, I mean, my mom's a doctor, but even if you have some medicine in your family, like I, I think very few people feel very comfortable. Like they know what they're doing at medical school. And my medical school was great too, that we had a lot of not what they call non-traditional uh, students, like people who had careers before going into medical school. And they brought a lot of different perspectives. Because you had people who already had kids, you had people who, you know, had ran businesses, who were publishers. And like, so they just came in with different, just so much life experience. And then you had people fresh out of college. And I had taken a year in between. Um, so, you know, I was like not quite uh, non traditional, but I wasn't straight through. <laughs> and so I think that range was so helpful because everyone was different. Everyone was coming from a different place. They were viewing it differently. And so I thought that was nice. And then I went to University of California, San Francisco for medical school. And it's actually like probably one of the most diverse medical schools in the country outside of, you know, like the historically black colleges. And so that was great too, because I sort of had a uh, community and the school itself valued diversity, uh, structural racism. They had like a lot of things that they taught about and talked about were things I was interested in. And so I felt very comfortable. The transition for me was easy where I went to school. I, I think some, not all schools are like that and not all people find a good match of school for who they are. And so some people want to struggle more, but I was fortunate to, uh, to not as much. You talked about, you know, feeling kind of out of place as being like a minority. And I feel like a lot of students feel that way too, right? No matter like how far you go, you just kind of feel left out and you can't relate to anyone. Do you still feel that way, even though you are in surgery and, you know, people might see you like, of course, she's going to have like all the confidence. He played football, went to Princeton, UCSF, you know, like on paper, you're just like this person who is going to be crushing it. But do you still feel left out or has that kind of gone away? Yeah, I, that's a great question. Um, I, I think it's... Um, so do I still feel out of place? I, I would say at some parts, yes. I think I'm a little bit more deferential to authority because at times, you know, I still have that imposter syndrome where I see some of my peers at my same level feel very empowered to speak out to positions of authority to demand certain things like in a way that I never really would. Mm -hmm. But in so many ways I've grown where I feel very much like I'm where I'm supposed to be. And then I deserved it and I worked hard. And I think a lot of that stems from my time at Princeton is that I, um, there I got to realize a lot of people at Princeton don't necessarily deserve to be there. A lot of them were legacies or their parents donated a lot of money and they get in for other kinds of reasons. And so, you know, that was just so, so empowering to be like, you know, the world works where a lot of people use advantages they don't deserve. And so, you know, you should always feel whatever room you get in or whatever opportunity, what award you win, um, that if you want it, you quote unquote deserve it and you should feel like you're there for a reason. So like now I try to take that, uh, when I'm, you know, going into the hospital and I'm going to see patients, like I feel, try to feel very empowered that like, you know, I know what I'm talking about. I've worked really hard to get here and I'm right where I'm supposed to be and nothing was handed to me. And so that's gotten so much better. I think. It's so interesting that you mentioned about 
talking to authority figures and I think for the most part people of color do feel a little more hesitant to speak up. You know, I was a sociology major in college and they uh, looked at the studies of white kids versus uh, my kids of minorities and you know like they just looked at white kids are three times more likely to argue for a grade they felt was undeserved than black kids they were like more likely to question authority and like that just like you know and so whether that stems from cultural like at home which it seems like or just in general how society viewed black people and like a little that's ingrained of not to challenge authority i don't know where it comes from but Mm -hmm. it 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 it, you know it starts at a young age though this i think the study like that i'm thinking about was like in third grade and i found that just so fascinating because it's true like i have that i feel like same experience like some people just you know i'm like whoa like you really said that to that person okay (laughs) i wouldn't have done that but sure (laughs) (laughs) i mean like and there's definitely some benefit for sure for speaking up and you know really advocating for yourself like there's a lot of positive that i don't think it's you know it's not all positive but you know i think we definitely as as minorities need to be much much better and much more vocal for ourselves Talking about having, you know, a voice, I'd like to switch gears a little bit into the New England Journal of Medicine article that you wrote titled Not Dying Alone, Modern Compassionate Care in the COVID-19 Pandemic. Can you tell me a little bit about, for the listeners, for the article that you wrote and, and has anything changed since you first wrote it? Yeah. So a little bit of background is so I'm a currently a surgical resident at the University of Michigan and for there that training program seven years it's five years of clinical training and then in, in after our third year we all take two years of research time during this time of research you can do what's called moonlighting which is working at most of the time com- smaller community hospitals and you work at night and hence the name moonlighting uh, and so me and the co- other co-authors on the paper, we had been moonlighting at this hospital out- just right outside Detroit. And we work in the ICUs there. And we had been doing this for like over a year, but just so happened COVID pandemic hit. And uh, Detroit was one of the hardest hit places in the U.S. at that time. And so we ended up just taking care of a lot and a lot of COVID patients at the beginning of this ongoing pandemic. And what we were finding is because at the time there wasn't, you know, enough PPE for workers. Everyone was kind of worried about infections uh, and spread. So what most hospitals did was limit the amount or limit visitors to none that you, that patients in the hospital couldn't have visitors. And unfortunately, especially at this time, COVID was very deadly. And in the ICU, if you got to the ICU, you, the chances of making out were really low. And so there's a lot of these patients who are dying and they weren't able to see their family members or more likely the family members weren't able to see them before they died. And so we wrote this article talking, and the article sort of details one particular patient experience of a family member who was, you know, who came to the hospital, but 
wasn't allowed to see uh, the family member before they died. But we just wrote about how how traumatic this is for families and how we need to come up with better solutions around these people dying that both balances the safety of the healthcare workers and the visitors and everyone around, but also allows, you know, people to spend their final moments surrounded by loved ones. And so since the time we wrote it, you know, they're, they've done new things now. Um, the ICUs, at least where I have, they all have iPads. And so you can FaceTime, the nurses FaceTime the family members. And so there's some communication. It's gotten better where they, they're allowing one visitor in as now, you know, but that, so, you know, people are definitely thinking about it and coming up with creative solutions, but it's still a tough situation. It's still like, no one's happy about it. it you know, and I think what we try to highlight in this piece is like, it's not done out of being malicious. Like the hospital, it's not like the hospitals don't care, blah, blah, blah. It's just that there's a reality that this is a very contagious spread. And if you start letting a bunch of visitors from the outside in where when testing is bad, that like you could spread the virus more in around sick people or that the people could get the virus from visiting their members. And so, you know, it's a complex situation, but we felt like this was a problem that no one was talking about at the time. And I think since then, people, I mean, the article, fortunately, did really well. Like, it's, I think it sparked a lot of conversation. I, you know, was fortunate enough to go on CNN and talk about it. And I think these are issues that people are now starting to talk about and come up with solutions with. And so we're very, very happy that an article could be a small part of that. Definitely. And a part that you talked about, too, was your time when it started. Uh, you said, you know, you're doing moonlighting just to get some extra money. And then COVID hit. And you were starting to see patients who look like you, so African-Americans. And you realized that it wasn't just like a coincidence. And the statement that this is going to affect us all equally is kind of false. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, yeah. So at the beginning of this pandemic, it was all like a, a common thing you hear. It's like, this is the great equalizer, like, coronavirus doesn't care if you're black, white, you're rich, you're poor, like it could get us all the same. And what we know now, and like what we didn't, re what I realized just by working and seeing these patients is that not everyone was getting it. It mm -hmm. was pri primarily, especially in the Detroit area, uh, African-Americans. And the data now is like, you know, it's three times, like Latinos are three times more likely, blacks are two and a half or two. Uh, if Americans there is astronomical, uh, people don't talk about that enough. And the reason behind that is because of the, our society, you know, the, it's a lot of the essential workers who were forced to work predominantly are minorities. Minorities predominantly can't self quarantine because they live in houses that are more populated with people of different generations. They also predominantly have to use public transportation to go to and from work, which you can't socially distance in public transportation effectively. And so while, it, yes, the 
gave it a shoe that anyone can get coronavirus for sure. But the way our society is structured is that the most vulnerable population are going to get hit the worst, which, you know, we all like this is not a new phenomenon. Coronavirus is just highlighting a problem that was already there. Um, but it was really jarring, especially those early days before all the data had come out. So just be like working in the ICU. It was over 90% African-Americans for sure. And that is like, you know, and my call and my colleagues at, in Ann Arbor, which is, you know, just for references, like maybe 13% African-American and like before COVID, the census at our hospital probably match something like that. Even that ICU was almost predominantly African-American. And so, you, you know, like even before it was, you know, widely published, like the people who've been working, like they knew this was not affecting everyone equally. Like I was just like, this is it, a certain demographic is getting this way more. Um, and so that, you know, that's sad. And I think, that just really, really highlights healthcare disparities in this country. And it is something that, you know, it's multifaceted for sure. It's a big problem. But I think, though, we got to stop just saying it's too big to solve. I think a lot of people say, oh, like, it's so complex and we can't do anything about it. And, like, I just don't think that's true anymore. And I think ignorance is no longer an option. I, I feel like everyone is starting to know. I think it's becoming a popular research so social determinants of health is what people are like framing all these things like housing insecurity, transportation, um, those things and how they affect your health, social determinants of health. I think that now is a popular buzzword that people are looking into. And I think it's something we're going to have to address as a medical community too. Like, you know, traditionally it's thought to be a policy makers thing, like a government needs to fix this problem. But I think as a healthcare community, we have to realize these are our patients and we're responsible and we need to just sort of advocate better for them. You know, one thing that I've always kind of looked at is there just needs to be more representation. I think you can agree, right? Uh, African-American doctors who represent the population. I think it's a conversation that we do need to talk about more, like, uh, we we need to have more representation of African-Americans and also African-American males, too, I think, is something that we need to talk about more of having in the medical community. Yeah, there's less African-American males today than there were in 1958. It is the only demographic that has gone down uh, over the last few decades. And, I mean, and representation matters uh, for a lot of different reasons. I think there has been studies that show even white doctors who train with a more diverse workforce state they feel more comfortable in taking care of minority patients and minority issues. And so, you know, it, it, it matters for those kind of things. Like, like, because when people in the room and they bring a different perspective, uh, it makes everyone around them better. It's, and it's not, you know, just that like all minority patients, they're the only people who can take care of minority doctors are the only people who can take care of minority patients. That's not true at all. But like some of the issues, some of the way we like think about problems, it's super helpful when you have people from that community in the room on the physician side to sort of interpret like, listen, this is how things are thought about. Like these are how the medical field is perceived for this reason, for that reason. And 
and look, yeah, it's great for it's great for minority patients to see minority doctors. Like every once in a while, like feel make them feel comfortable, make them feel safe, and I think that's that's definitely something we need of all. And I think we, I think the medical field has done great with women, increasing women in the medical field. I think that's gone really, really well, and I think we're starting to see some of the benefits like i think medicine is changing a lot uh, from what it used to be and like working 300 hours and like never going home and mm-hmm. i think women have played a huge role in that and just making it a much more humane profession i think the next thing that we got to do is work on diversity and make it uh, a much more diverse place because the studies do show the patients benefit the most minorities patients feel more comfortable they're more likely to to do preventative care or accept invasive procedures from minority physicians. And like all those things lead to better outcomes in them. So it's very important. Did you know that you wanted to do surgery? From- no, no, I went in like uh, to medical school having like no idea. I mean, just from like shows on TV, like I thought like emergency medicine or surgery sounded cool. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, like no experience. And then, like I said, like we, I'm sure the same thing. We had a bunch of interest groups for like the first two years where you join and like people come and talk and uh, talk about what they do. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I listened to a trauma surgeon talk and I really, really liked him. And he was an African-American trauma surgeon. So I just started kind of shadowing him. And so I went into third year thinking like, I really like surgery. Let me see what what's about. And then I did it first, like I mentioned and loved it. And so then from then on out, I was like, okay, I'm doing surgery. And, but like loved everything else, you know, but it's so, it's, it's so crazy though. Cause like, I think about like, if I would have went to like an anesthesia talk and really connected with a anesthesiologist mentor, like, you know, I might've been an anesthesiologist. It's just like, you know, because I like so much and it's just, my career has been so heavily influenced by mentors. Mm-hmm. So, which leads into your podcast, uh, which is part of the importance of having uh, diversity in medicine. So, like, you can see yourself within different people. And then so, and like, that's how these things kind of happen. And how has residency been for you so far? Residency has been amazing. I have really, really enjoyed learning to be a surgeon and every day. It's tough. It's long hours. Don't get me wrong. Not all of it's great. Some days are really like very difficult and challenging and exhausting. But at the end of the day, I wouldn't trade it for anything else because I'm like really learning how to help people. And on the best days, I do really, really good for people. And it's challenging. And every day I learn something new. Uh, and residency is great um, time because there's always someone that knows more than you around. And then once you get past your engineer, there's always someone that you know more than. So like mm. you, you always, you can always see whenever like the new interns start and like the people under you, like you teach them something and you see how much it shows you how much you've learned, but you're always around someone ahead of you that's always teaching you. So you're like, man, like I still don't know anything. Like, mm-hmm. And I think it's very humbling and exciting all in one. And like, I love that. I love that aspect of it. I love that. Like, like every day I get to teach someone something that they didn't know. And every day I learn something I didn't know from someone else. And so like, I never feel 
comfortable. Like I never feel like, oh, I got this. Like, there's always something to be improving on. I, I really, really like that aspect of it. It, it. it does change. It can definitely, it can definitely be challenging for women of color. They get challenged a lot more by the staff. You know, I. I commonly get mistaken for the tech or the janitor. Mm. That's not an uncommon experience. And, you know, sometimes, especially early on, you know, like you get, you kind of have to establish like who you are where like, you know, like, yeah, like people can sometimes treat you like you don't know what you're talking about. And like, you have to be really nice about it. Like where I think, for for me, I feel pressure to be like really nice because I I don't want to ever come across as like an angry black guy. So like when people <laughs> like say things that are or like it becomes very problematic for the patient, where mm-hmm. some of my co residents can like fly off the handle and just be like, you know, like yell, scream, like I'm always like, hey, like I know you're probably really busy and like you didn't really remember, but I asked you to do this thing two hours ago. I actually asked you twice. I'm like I know you're super busy, but like can you please just do it? Thank you so much. And like, <laughs> like, that, like that can be like that stuff. Like, I, you know, you still have some of that, a lot of that actually. And that, that can be challenging. I find that stuff challenging, but you know, I, a lot of people, you know, have their burden. And I think women have it way worse than I do. I think women of color have it especially way worse than anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's tough. It's tough. It's tough. Like to constantly, feel like you have to code switch, talk a certain way, act a certain way in order not to be like a stereotype and get people to take you seriously. I just want to say thank you for coming on this podcast and sharing part of your story and sharing why representation matters. That being said, are there any final words of encouragement you have for us? Yeah, I, you know, I would say the, the, um, the journey is not straight. Like it is... You're going to have some major disappointments. You're going to, you're going to, like I said, I had a 1.8 at one point and I like, you know, I had an advisor tell me I should do something else. And, you know, you're going to be very frustrated. Sometimes you're going to feel like you're being treated unfairly. And like, that's probably because you are. And so it is a very long and, and arduous road to get to here, to get to be a doctor, but it is a thousand, a thousand percent worth it like every single time and so i think though like in the moments like when you're discouraged you just have to kind of push through because it means so much for your future patients to have people like you there and taking care of them and it's a it's a real privilege to become a doctor and all it requires is hard work and compassion which everyone has or has the potential to have and so yeah like i I would just I would just really encourage people not to give up, I would say. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Behind the White Coat. I would like to thank David DeRoche for his guidance and the Quinnipiac University Podcast Studio for their support. Please make sure you subscribe either on iTunes or Spotify so you can get notified when the next episode is released. Thank you for your time and I hope you enjoyed this episode.